that we're going to cover three chapters um, in, in this one sermon, right? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And we will read a bit of the first eight verses. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And the reason why we stand or continue standing for the word of God is because this word is alive, is active, it is powerful. It can transform our hearts from the inside out. And so if we're able to stand, we stand in reverence of this word. Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law out of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood a number of men who I'm not going to name at the moment. Look at verse five with me. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And he, as he opened it, the people stood. The people stood when he opened the book. Verse six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads in worship. And the Lord, the worship the Lord with their faces toward the ground. Then another group of men, who I'm not going to name at the moment, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and gave them the sense so that the people understood the reading. You may be seated. Let us pray together. Father, as we come before your word tonight, we do so in reverence. We do so acknowledging that this is your word. And when we read this aloud, you are speaking to us. And you have something to say to us from this passage, from these chapters. And God, I'm, I'm humbled by this message. And I need your spirit not only to help me proclaim it, but to help me as well to live in light of the truths of these chapters. So God, would you do that? Would you allow the message to go forth with clarity and for your people to receive the message? And then may you allow us by the power of your spirit to 
embrace the message, to live out the message, to apply what we hear today in our walk with Jesus to Christ. Help us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to consider where we have been in light of this book, and then we'll consider chapter 7 through 10 this evening, all right? But think about where we began when Nehemiah got the news that the, the, his people's town, the village in which his people are from, Jerusalem, the walls were still tore down. And the walls represented the people and their lack of security and defense. And so he, with a, a burdened heart, prayed. And the Lord worked in such a way where he was able to go back and rebuild the walls. And as he, with the fellow Jews, began this great work, it was not a work without opposition. There was much opposition for them to finish this work. But we read in chapter 6 that after a hard road in 52 days, the walls were built. And we would we could almost assume that the people, after building the walls, would almost wipe the sweat off their brow and kind of sit down and say, Woof. It's done. The work is complete. Now let's get back to normal life. We can assume that that would have been a temptation for them, but Nehemiah knew that the work was not finished. Although the walls were rebuilt, the work was not finished. He did not want the people to become complacent. He did not want the people to feel self-satisfied about the work and miss the, the truth that there was still a great work to do in the hearts of the people. The city walls had been rebuilt, but there was still a work to do inside the hearts of the people. And I think we too today need to be on guard when we set up religious services or when we set up programs within the church, when the church is functioning well, I think there's a temptation for us to become complacent and to sit back and think, things are good. The work is being done. Are you with me? We can become self-satisfied with activities and programs and ignore the reality that there's a deep work that needs to be done in our hearts and in the hearts of people. Amen? And so Nehemiah recognized that there was still a work to be done, and we too need to recognize that there's still a work to be done. We need a whole inward transformation. We need to be renewed. Our hearts need to be renewed day by day. And there's one way the Bible makes clear this happens, and that is through the word of God. We need the word. We need the word in our midst. We need the word working in our hearts. And we need the word directing and influencing all we do in our gospel community. And I actually want to use that as an outline to navigate our time together through these three chapters. I want to talk about the word in our midst, and we'll see that in the text, the word working in our hearts, and then the word influencing every aspect in the gospel community. And so uh, first... The word working in our hearts. Don't be alarmed that we're taking. And so don't be intimidated by that. Let me give you an overview of the chapters that we have. In chapter 7, I want you to think about the idea of re 
reinvestment. Reinvestment. Look back real quickly with me at chapter 7. In chapter 7, Nehemiah notes that the walls have been rebuilt at the end of chapter 6. And the doors have been set up. And he set his brother in charge of Jerusalem because he was a faithful and God-fearing man. Verse 2. And he kind of gave him instructions about how the city was to function. In verse 5, he says, Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be rolled into genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first. And I found written in it those, and he will go on to acknowledge the people whose name was written in the record. And the idea here is there were a lot of people who came to live in Jerusalem in between the the deportation and the return to the land, many people who came to live in the land who did not have Jerusalem's interests in mind. There were many people who came to live around the city who were not people who were zealous for the glory of God. And so Nehemiah wants the people to live in the land who, has a, who have a zeal for God's glory. He wants the people to live in Jerusalem, the city specifically, those who would stand up and have stake within the kingdom of, of God. And so that's why he's looking at the genealogy to know who were the first to come back, who were the first to return, because that may be an indicator of people who had passion for the Jerusalem, the city, and passion for the Lord our God. And so that's what chapter 7 is. We have a list of names of people who returned and the gifts that they brought with them to the work of the city. In chapter 8, we see those same people then gathered together. Those who could gather would gather and they beckoned Ezra to bring out the book. And when you think about chapter 8, I want you to think about the idea of renewal. Renewal. So chapter 7 is reinvestment. Chapter 8 is renewal. Chapter 9 is the concept of repentance. And chapter 10 is this big idea of recommitment to the covenant. Did you catch that? So that's the scope of where we're going. That's the scope of the text in which we're working with. There's reinvestment. He wants those who came back to the city to be um, acknowledge and he's going to encourage some of them to move into Jerusalem, reinvestment, renewal in chapter 8, repentance in chapter 9, and recommitment in chapter 10. And all of this is centered on the word of God. All of this renewal, all of this work, all of this building up the people will be a work that happens through the word. And that's what we have in chapter 8 where they beg Nehemiah, they're called, I mean, they're, they they call Ezra to bring out the book, to bring out the book of the law. And you see that it's interesting that Ezra goes up onto a platform and he has a podium, right? It gives you a common picture of common day, right? And there he stands up and he reads the scripture. And the people's response is really interesting. Number one, they stand as well. They stand for the reading of the word. And it said that this happened in early morning until midday. So I don't know how long they were standing, but that was a quite, a, quite a reading, wouldn't you say? Some commentators know that there were about 50,000 people there. 
50,000 people hearing the word of God being read. And notice their response, right? Notice their response. In verse 6, it says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. I challenge you all every week to say amen. And here it is, right in the Bible. It is biblical to say amen and to lift up our hands. Amen. You have freedom to do it or, or not to do it. I want to highlight that. But we see here their response to the word of God. It's an amazing response. And notice also in verse 6, they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And the picture here is that the priests, there were 13 priests, it seems, that went out into the midst of the people. And they were helping people understand the words that had been read from the book. And it's interesting to note that many of those people probably spoke Aramaic. And so a lot of what was happening is that the scripture that was read in Hebrew was then translated to the people in Aramaic so that they can get the words. But I'm also sure that it, was on, it wasn't only a translating, it was, a, it was a explaining the word. There was expositioning, expositioning happening as they went amongst the people. They were breaking down the word. They were proclaiming the truth. They were helping the people understand everything that was written in God's law. I'm sure that they recall the work of creation and how God made the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. I'm sure they recorded and recalled how the fall happened and how sin entered the world through temptation. Eve first and then Adam bringing sin into the world. I'm sure they recalled the promise of God there that we find in Genesis 3 where God told the serpent that his head would be crushed, that victory would come through the seed of the woman. I'm sure they, they talked about and recalled Abraham and the promise that God gave to him. I'm sure that they recalled Egypt and, and what happened there, how the people were enslaved in slavery for 400 years. And yet with a mighty arm, God brought them out. God rescued his people and brought them out. I'm sure they talked about the sacrificial system and how God set in place a way in which sin could be temporarily atoned for so that man could have relationship with him. I'm sure they talked about the commandment, the greatest commandment for the people to love the Lord, their God, with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their strength. And I'm sure they were called the failures of the people throughout history. Rebelling against God, refusing to love God, refusing to serve God. I'm sure they recalled the brokenness amongst their people. And that is why the people wanted to mourn. We see that, right? Verse nine, it says, the people this day is a holy day. Do not mourn or weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. It broke their heart when they realized how their people and their history was a history of disobedience. It was a history of running away from a very good God. But Nehemiah encouraged them on that day, let's not mourn, let's rejoice. 
let's rejoice. And here is where I really got this first point from the word being in our midst. I think Nehemiah wanted them to celebrate that day. And then 23 days later, they would have a time of repentance and mourning. But he wanted to celebrate at that moment because the word was now being brought back into the midst of the people. And we get that from verse 10. He says, he says, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our God and do not be grieved for the Lord of, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites claim to all the people, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way and ate, drank, and sent portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. They're rejoicing because the word is in their midst. They're restoring a culture of people who are dependent and, and saturated with the word of God. And, and I think that's a practical point for us. We need to be a community where the word is in our midst and the word is on our lips and we speak the word to one another. We stand on the word. We need to be a community that not only tells the word and speaks the word to one another, but speaks the word to the community. If someone spends at least, amen, I see that, amen. If someone spends just a little bit of time here at Clearview, they should hear about Jesus. They should hear about God's love. They should hear about God's mercy. The word should be in our midst. The word should be flowing from us. Amen. Amen. But the word not only needs to be in our midst, the word needs to be working in our hearts. And that's what we have in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is about 23 days later. It says on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with the earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And so verses one through six kind of really sets up the chapter and help us to know that at this time, because of the word, the people of God went into the season of repenting and confessing their sins. And in verses 6 to verse 37 is this chapter of just recalling how they have rebelled against God and how God had poured out mercy on them in this cycle of rebelling, yet mercy. And at the end, they plead and ask for forgiveness. They're asking for mercy. They're asking that God would remember their sins no more. And what's interesting here is that if you really take some time and spend just thinking about what they're confessing here in the chapter, the main thing that they're acknowledging throughout the history of their forefathers is the sin of idolatry. They, didn't, they acknowledged that there was sin within the people, but at the heart of their confession is that, God, we dethroned you in our hearts. We put things above you. We didn't submit to you. The key sin in which they repent for is idolatry, making something more important than God. And if we just take a step back and recognize this too is at the essence of all of our sin, it's idolatry. 
we put something before God. We, we dethrone God in our heart. We put something in the place where he should be. And so they cry out for mercy and they cry out for forgiveness. And what's also interesting about this prayer of confession is that we see the mercy of God and they remember the mercy of God and they recall the mercy of God. And it's important to note that the word of God not only exposes our sins and our failures, the word of God also reveals to us our savior in the mercy of God. Yes, the word reveals our sin, but the word also reveals the solution to our sin. Amen. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 of chapter nine. It says, nevertheless, in the midst of all of our rebellion, in the midst of all of our stiff-neckedness. Look at verse 31. He says, Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make it in of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and a merciful God. You see it? The word does that. And when the word is working in our hearts, it will expose our sin, but it will also shine light on our Savior and a solution for our sin. In Ephesians chapter 2 does this in a perfect example. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is this acknowledgement of us and our brokenness, right? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 it says, We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at, at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was us in our sin, separated from God. But then the transition, right? Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his God being great rich in love. mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses of sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is the good news. This is the good news. And this is how the word works. The word exposes our sin, but the word leads us to our savior. The word, the word shows us where we have fallen and where we are broken. And it shows us how Jesus can make everything right. And when the word is working in our hearts, this will be the process. We will acknowledge our sins but we will then embrace his mercy and grace. And it is at this point where I just want to take a step back and ask the question and answer the question, why do we submit all of life to the word of God? Why do we allow the word to have such weight in our midst? We're talking about we want the word in our midst. We want the word working in our hearts. Why are we giving the Bible this much prominence? I want to answer that question, and I want to do that by just highlighting the fact that it is the nature of Scripture 
And it is the power of scripture that makes us do so. Are you with me? We're giving the word such prominence. We're saying that we're standing on the word. We're Bible people. We want the Bible to have this work in us. And we believe that it will do this work in us because of the nature of scripture and the power of scripture. Look at look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want everyone, if you can, to turn to this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If someone has it, could you read it for me, please? Yes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, mm-hmm. for correction, and for training in righteousness. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. This is one of the main passages that I think roots the the nature of Scripture and why we believe this book is the Word of God. Paul says that this Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspired by Him. Yes, man put the pen to the paper, but God was behind the man, guiding every word, producing what we have in the Scripture. It was exactly what God wanted, and it was exactly what we needed. Amen? Amen. And so here we have God's word. And Paul says that this scripture is profitable. It's profitable. For what? For teaching us. That means informing us, helping us to understand who God is, what his truth is, who we are. What we need to do in response to who he is. The scripture is profitable for teaching, but then also for reproof. And that's Nehemiah chapter 9, right? Recognizing where we are wrong, recognizing where we have sin, pointing out our faults. But then what does the scripture do? It corrects us. Not only exposes where we're wrong, but it tells us how to get right. It tells us where we are to walk. This is so powerful. And I know this is, many of us know this and we stand on this, but it's so important for us to have this foundation of of engaging the scriptures. He goes on to say that the scripture is also profitable for training us in righteousness. That's the everyday affairs of life, walking and imitating Jesus, becoming like him. Living in the footsteps of our Savior. How can we do that? By being trained in the scriptures. The scriptures will lead us to do that. And if we do do that, verse 17, it says, The man of God will be complete and equipped for every good work. But not only this passage. Let me show you another passage. Psalm 19. And I thought Brother Mario was going to go there. Psalm 119 is full of scripture about the word of God, but also is Psalm 19. Look there with me really quickly. Psalm 19. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. The way that it's set up, verses 1 through 6, it's actually speaking about uh, natural revelation. And what we mean by natural revelation is that the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, verse 1. We can know that there is a God because of creation. 
we look at the beauty, we look at the, the majesty of creation, we know that there is a God. But also, this psalm, it describes special revelation. And what we mean by special revelation is that the scripture actually tells us more about our creator that we can never figure out by just looking at creation. Are you with me? Yeah. In verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, much even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. You hear how the psalmist exalts the word of God. And don't be troubled by the many synonyms that we find here. When he talks about the testimonies, the precepts, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, all of those are synonyms for the scriptures. And we're told the beauty, the glory, the power of the scriptures here in this text. Other passages would, would uh, agree with this psalm where it says that literally we come into new birth by the word of God. We're not even able to become Christians apart from the word. Are you with me? This psalm highlights the power of God's word. So it's the nature of God's word, and it's the power of God's word. It's the reason why we stand on it. It's the reason why we stand on it. Let me show you one more verse, okay? I had like 20 of them, but I narrowed it down to three passages. So let me show you one more passage, and this passage really encourages me to stand on God's word. It's found in Acts chapter 20, Verse 32. Acts chapter 20. Here's the scene. Paul has spent a year and a half, many people think, with the Ephesians, doing work amongst them, laboring in love, preaching them the word of God, going from house to house, doing the work of the ministry. And he's getting ready to leave the elders. And he tells them in verse 32, and now I commend you to God, right? I'm entrusting you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. You see that? Paul is saying, I entrust you to God and his word. And him and his word, it's all you need to live this Christian life, to persevere, to receive the inheritance of those who are sanctified, those who are in the faith. Paul had such a confidence. And these were loved ones he's standing before. So I trust you to God and his word. Trust you to God and his word. So if we just take a step back, we acknowledge that the word of God has power, power to regenerate, power to illuminate, power to produce obedience in us. 
power to cleanse us, power to sanctify us, power to build us up. You want to look like Jesus? You want to grow? Get in the word. The word has power to equip us. And it is because of these things. It's because of the understanding of the power and the authority of the scriptures that when we look at chapter 10 of Nehemiah, it makes a lot of sense. Chapter 10, what do we see? We see the people making a covenant to recommit themselves to God and to his word. In chapter 10, verses 1 to 26, we have the list of people. In verse 28 and 29, we have a summary of their vows. And in verse 30 to the end of the chapter, they get very specific in how they want to respond to God's word. They say in verse 28 and 29, let a curse be on us if we don't keep this word. That's the way they feel like they should respond to God's word. Let a curse be on us. They say we will not enter marriage with those who are not a part of the covenant community. They said in verse 31, we're going to observe the Sabbath. Verse 32 to 39, said we're going to support the temple ministry, which is super important for their time. It's which how they engage with the Lord, how they had communion with him through the sacrificial system. But if you just take a, a step back and ask what is happening in chapter 10, the people are saying everything we do is going to be ruled by the word of God. Everything we do, we commit to having the word influence every aspect of our lives. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. And that's what we need to do, right? We need the word to influence every aspect of our community. We need the word to dictate how we are to be husbands, how we are to be wives, how we are to be brothers and sisters in the Lord, how we are to be servants, how we are to work, how we are to love, how we are to serve. The word of God is to dictate everything we do. Amen. Amen. So as we close, let me ask a couple of questions. How, and I'm asking myself these questions. And if you want to join me in this self-examination, I invite you. The question I'm asking myself is, how is my relationship to God's word? How is my relationship to God's word? Do I see it as prominent and essential to my spiritual life and nourishment? Do I see this as the key way in which I will grow? That I will be a healthy follower of Jesus? Is it holding its prominent place in my life? I'm asking myself this question. Do I often read and meditate on the word? Am I storing it up in my heart? Am I storing up the word in my heart? Do I seek to obey what I'm receiving from the word? And this one hurt, brothers and sisters. It is so easy to just get it and give it, right? Call somebody. Do I have a friend? Just get it and give it. Honey, I learned this today. I learned this today to get it and talk about it. But am I actually seeking to obey the things that God is teaching me? Is the word of God in my mouth? Am I sharing it with those who God brings around me? My prayer 
is that we will be the people of the book. We will not just talk about it. We will not just hear it, but we will engage it. We will respond to it. We will obey it. We will pray it. We will sing it. We will eat this book. Get it tattooed on you if that's the kind of things you're into. <laughs> and I'm teasing there, but we want the word of God to get into us. Amen. Amen. Get into the word until the word gets in to us. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for your word. In these, these three chapters, Father, we are taught. We're taught. Your word must be in our midst. Your word must be working in our hearts. And your word must be influencing every aspect of our lives. Would you make that so, Father? Would you make it so? In Jesus' name, amen.